Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Let It Roll Maxi series on the history of DJs, disco, and electronic dance music, hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Nate uses AKG microphones and headphones. Today, Nate and Ryan continue their discussion of Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, the history of the disc jockey by Bill Brewster and Frank Boughton. This week's episode focuses on Frankie Knuckles, Ron Hardy, and the birth of house music in Chicago. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll, or should I say techno roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, joined by my partner in crime, Ryan Harkness. We're continuing our discussion of Last Night, A DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey by Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton. And we get to the big one, finally. I don't want to say finally, because I've enjoyed what we've talked about and learned a ton, but this is house, Chicago house. I'd say this is where 21st century music begins. Ryan, general thoughts? Yeah, it's interesting uh, because we're, you basically get maybe about uh, three-fifths of the way through the book before you finally hit hit that. And I remember reading this this book as, as a young one and, and not really – caring about the influences, which was ignorant on my part, uh, going through it again this time. I've really enjoyed everything that leads up to it. And it really teaches you about uh, all the influences that are that are messing about. But uh, yeah, we're finally at house and houses where things get exciting because this is kind of where where I start hearing stuff like where my memories you, you you're much well, I don't want to. You're much older than me, but you're older <laughs> much, than me. You're, much older. You're, you you were there for the disco stuff, and I I'm only I only no. have secondhand. By the time I was old enough to go into a club, disco was long dead. It had already been dead like five six years, and house was there. Although most of the clubs I went to were either playing, you know, English New Wave, New Order, that kind of stuff, Human League, etc. Or they were having trash disco nights, which were a self-conscious tongue-in-cheek version of old-school disco. But that they were playing, you know, the Bee Gees and and some MFSB and good stuff, but mostly the hot white garbage. You know, it was like very tongue-in-cheek kind of stuff. 
but also there were clubs playing house, but I didn't know what it was. It was just this an immense technological thumping, driving rhythm that I just took for granted. I mean, the clubs were there already playing it the first time I went. So I didn't realize it was a pretty much a brand new thing. I didn't realize that it was only when I was in clubs in Dallas. And the one time I went to a club in Houston that I was hearing this stuff, I, I didn't even really distinguish it. I wasn't with it enough to go, what is this? You know, and nobody was telling me. It was just like, oh, it's that techno stuff. You know, it's like, oh, Where that's are you what you're going to find out about it before the internet. It's like, how are you supposed to find out that what, what's going on is is new or old or anything? I just don't, I can't even, can't even kind of comprehend. Like, it, it just seems like things would happen in a bit of an information void and you just roll with it. Yeah, there were definitely people who, were curious enough to find out people that I knew, you know, people that were DJing or people that would go to Bill's record store in Dallas or uh, alien records later on in Austin in the late nineties. I, I don't know what, where they were going in the eighties, but I'm sure there were people that I knew that were tracking down house records, you know, in 88, 89. Um, but I, I wasn't paying any attention to that. And the stuff I was reading, you know, maximum rock and roll or spin or, um, you know, various, punk rock zines had no mention of this stuff. And so, um, you know, I heard the term house, but I just didn't know what it meant, but let's, let's, let's dive into the, into the, into the subject itself. The, the, the authors claim that house is the first black American sound that relies on European pop for its inspiration. And I definitely did not know this was music made by black teenagers in Chicago on cheap ass equipment. You know, I, I, the, the homebrew aspect of this was not apparent to me at all because all I was hearing was thudding 808 drum machines and, not, so, you know, I would be in and out of the clubs anyway. You know, I was just there for nefarious reasons, basically. So I wasn't wasn't really there for the dancing or the music. So I, you know, wasn't getting it. But the fact that this was made by black teenagers in Chicago totally evaded me, and I think is a huge factor. And yeah, Frankie yeah. Knuckles. Oh, go ahead. It's a it's a technological kind of uh, step forward where all of a sudden you have drum machines that are that are cheap enough and uh, technical technologically uh, manageable enough to to do things with. Basically, like all through the seventies, you had drum machines, but they were kind of like what you find in one of those church organs where you have a samba button or a or bossa nova button, and all of a sudden uh, the TB uh, what was it the Roland TR eight hundred eight comes out in uh, 1980 and all of a sudden this is a programmable drum machine with bass capabilities so all of a sudden you can you can basically have a, a recording studio just with this machine and a, and a, a four track and, and and all of a sudden it really opens everything up for for the average consumer and these guys were passing these devices around like uh, you have stories about uh, basically Jesse Saunders uh, 808 making its rounds and being responsible for about like 50% of the legendary Chicago house tracks that were coming out at the time because it was just you know they only had enough money for for so much gear so it was all shared about yeah absolutely and and a key part of the story and, and what they start the chapter with is the fact that the produced records that start coming out of Chicago in 1984 and beyond 
are catching up with what Chicago DJs had been doing from the beginning of the 1980s. And it starts in New York. We, we've been talking about Frankie Knuckles. We mentioned him on several episodes. He was an understudy to Larry LeVan, did lights for him at the Continental Baths, then replaced him at the Continental Baths when Larry moved on. But, but in New York City, Frankie could not get out of Larry's shadow. And so when some money guys from Chicago who'd seen what was going on in New York, and this is the mid-70s, this is disco is just about to peak. They're like, this could make us money in Chicago to have an after-hours dance club. Let's do it. They go to New York. They hire, um, and now I'm forgetting, who's the dude that built all the sound systems? Oh, geez. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's long. Rick Long is what I want to say, but that could be wrong. We'll, we'll Google it. But the same guy that made the sound system at David Mancuso's Loft, who made made the sound system at Larry LeVan's Paradise Garage, they brought him out to Chicago. He builds this great sound system in the warehouse, and they try to hire Larry LeVan. Can't. Frankie Knuckles takes the gig. He thinks he's just going to go out there for a few weeks and check it out. He ends up staying for basically a decade and getting famous in the process. And... At first, he's just doing introducing disco techniques to Chicago. It's an after-hours club. He's mixing records. He's playing soul soul classics and you know Philly soul classics, MFSB, that kind of stuff. When Giorgio Moroder and Donna Summer come along, he's playing that. But then when Disco Sucks happens, and this happened in Chicago, remember? That's one of the delicious ironies of this is the, the, the infamous um, – Disco night at at the White Sox Stadium, Comiskey Park, happened in Chicago. And Frankie Knuckles just rides it out, but there's a shortage of up-tempo dance records because the major labels abandon it. So he he plays a lot of Italo disco, and he plays some of the things like the Peach Boys, that Larry LeVan's group in New York, stuff that's coming out of New York, the kind of dub influence post-disco that's big at that time. Um, to an overwhelmingly gay black audience in Chicago. So this is very underground. I mean, and this is, again, something I have learned and trying to reiterate throughout the Let It Roll series is that exciting music comes from the margins. It's not the center of society. It's not the heights of society that makes the great music that everybody else follows. It's almost always four scruffs from Liverpool or some weirdly intersectional kid from memphis or a bunch of black gay kids in chicago that nobody is looking at nobody is watching nobody's pay attention chicago chicago kind of punched under its weight historically as a music scene you had chess records and in, in the 50s and 60s bringing us blues and rock and roll you had uh, bluebird in the in the 30s and 40s bringing jazz but detroit with Motown kind of stole Chicago's thunder. I mean, you had Curtis Mayfield and others, but you know, Philly and Detroit and other cities had taken the lead from Chicago in the seventies. And so when Frankie Knuckles starts doing this stuff, it's a total backwater. There's no after hours clubs. People are blown away by the mixing and the kinds of techniques he brings. And let's, let's hear Frankie Knuckles. This is Frankie Knuckles at the warehouse in 1981. And he's mixing two records, Debbie Jacobs, Don't You Want My Love with Modern Romance's Salsa Rhapsody. These are both pretty standard disco tracks, but listen to the way he mixes them and the sound effects he uses to bridge them. This is Frankie Knuckles at the warehouse in 1981. Yeah. 
that's Frankie Knuckles doing the transition at the warehouse in 1981 between Debbie Jacobs' Don't You Want My Love and Modern Romance Salsa Rhapsody, two pretty standard disco songs that are already old by this time. And I'm sure there are, you know, real Frankie Knuckles heads who could point us to a much more brilliant transition. Apologies. I'm not going to make any, uh, I am a neophyte at this stuff for sure, but I, you know, that was one I grabbed and there's, there's lots of Frankie Knuckles sets out there that are documented. So unlike Francis Grasso or David Mancuso's early days, we can actually hear the kind of mixes he was doing at least by the early eighties. And we can hear how that leads to how that inspires the producers that are going to make house records in just a few years. And the music starts being called house long before there are records being made in this genre, because house is originally what Frankie Knuckles plays at the warehouse. Local record stores realize this is an opportunity. They set up sections, warehouse music, then it's house music. Boom. It's house music. It's very similar to garage and the way what Larry LeVan was playing at the paradise garage sort of laid the groundwork for what later was codified into a genre of dance music. And that comes from, from Frankie Knuckles basically uh, being being pretty eclectic in his selections and stuff. It's uh, what we were talking about before about how house music is is a weird mishmash of everything. And I read a good quote from Spin that says, house borrows from obscure Italian disco records that imitate New York club records that draw from Philadelphia soul that grew out of Detroit black pop. So it's this weird kind of uh, spin cycle in it. And it came, it came from, you know, from Philadelphia into New York and then Italian disco records imitating the New York sound and then Chicago imitating the Italian disco sound. So it's, it was a weird kind of spin cycle, but Frankie Knuckles was, was an important character because he was willing to play it all. Uh, there's a lot of DJs that get stuck in a sound and and they get known for that sound and they stick to it and you we're we're going to get into this later when we start talking about ron hardy but frankie knuckles maybe gets it, it might sound like i'm talking shit about frankie knuckles because he's not as eclectic as ron hardy and ron hardy was the one that really pushed things out but he was still uh he was he was really the 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 taste maker he was the one that opened this up he came in with that new york cred and he used it to really expand and open people's eyes. And he was the one that was picking up these weird sounding house tracks and, and making the genre. Absolutely. And he's he's very much a torch carrier. He's the guy who kept the, the disco torch burning in Chicago during the peak of the backlash. And there's a great quote in here. It says, as well as popularizing the funky, the soulful, the dangerous side of disco, Frankie Knuckles also imported its spirit, fostering the communal, emancipating hedonism of disco's gay underground. In doing this, he was the catalyst for an unprecedented explosion of musical creativity. And that's because he's mixing these records. He's doing these reel-to-reel tapes where he's making his own mixes because he had to remix his records there, even with the Italo disco and the post up stuff coming out of New York, he did not have enough new records to keep his dance floor hopping. So he had to really remix his old records and he would really, you know, he would expand the breaks. He would, he, he loved to loop sections of just the beat so that when the vocals came in, it's this huge orgasmic moment. And, and he really planned out his sets. He thought in terms of a series of peaks and crescendos. And then, but he, we also compared to Ron Hardy, who's this wild man, Frankie liked to keep things under control. So he would have it all mapped out and he would, he would let the crowd get 
pretty crazy, but not too crazy. He'd pull back when he saw him getting, you know, out of control. But this style he's developing gets in the ears of these kids in Chicago. And when they make records, they're catching up with stuff that he has done. And also Ron Hardy, who's kind of like the Rolling Stones to Frankie Knuckles Beatles. You know, Frankie is the guy with the craft, with the melody, with the exciting rhythms, who, who lays the basic template, who opens the doors, who clears the path. And then, you know, things change in Chicago. There's some tension with the owners of the warehouse. The location is, is shut down. Frankie decides to own his own club and opens up the power plant. And the guys who would run the warehouse keep going in a new location called the Music Box, and they bring in this kid, Ron Hardy. And Ron Hardy had actually been in Chicago playing disco before Frankie Knuckles came to town, but he left town, left the scene wide open for Frankie. But then he comes back, and he comes back, you know, and is just a wild man. He's an unabashed, hedonist, drug-taking loon who just controls the crowd without mercy you know lots of people talk about him in terms of like he's an idol like they describe how he made them cry how he made them scream how he would control the crowd and just stretch them to their limits just stretch out the beats and then you know when he brings in the vocals it's much bigger just for many people he's the first modern dj that they ever experience and it's a religious experience yeah, there's 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 blending. There's DJs that blend and they 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 take you on a journey and they go from you know point A to point B to point C and through on on a on a planned trip. And then Ron Hardy's someone that's you know basically driving the stunt plane and and doing flips and roundabouts and he's cutting the EQs and he's throwing in all sorts of reverb and then he's like uh, yeah he's he's going crazy laying two tracks over each other and and no no care in the world for whether or not he goes from you know a track with real middle of the road energy and just slams it right in he'll play tracks at plus eight which uh even now is kind of like you'll you'll get people turning their nose up at you if you find out that you're playing pitch up so it's hyper pop we call it these days you know he's he's planting those first seeds of 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 going fast and one thing that i should mention in the frankie knuckles section is that white straight kids and also straight kids from Chicago, straight black kids from Chicago's South side, which is slightly more prosperous than the the area the warehouse was in start getting into the club. The music is so hot that it gets beyond its initial audience of, of gay black people and, you know, more straight kids get in there and that kind of waters down the club for some people. And when the two clubs open up, Frankie Knuckles' place is more the place for the older, dress up, go out, have a nice evening. Ron Hardy is the place where the straight kids and the slam dancers and the and the the craziest jackers. Jacking is what they call the dancing that is created around house, although they're also, like I said, slam dancing. And that's where you just grab a column or somebody and you just start humping on them. It's the craziest uh, dance. Yeah, you can you can go on to YouTube and there's there's uh, it, it's kind of like the controversy right now where they had a Jimmy Fallon video where he has uh, this this girl doing these dances from TikTok and she's kind of doing them and then they show the original and this girl ain't holding a candle to them. If you see a bad video of somebody jacking, it basically looks like the hump dance from Beavis and Butthead where it's just you know like pelvic <laughs> thrusting. Yep. While yep. if you if you see someone who knows what they're doing, it it's 
I mean, it's still, you can't deny it. It's basically a pelvic thrust dance, but it's more like a smooth S and it, like they writhe and it's really good. And, and, and there's two kind of definitions of jacking. There's the jacking where you just stand there and you're doing it in that smooth S and you're mixing in all sorts of moves. And then there's the, where, where, some, where, you, where jacking has to be, you're grabbing the wall, you're grabbing a pillar, a table, a speaker, somebody, and you're jacking on them. So it's, it's interesting. And I definitely encourage people to go on YouTube and check out some jacking videos because it's, it's something to behold. Absolutely. And, and one of the things I say is that, you know, if Frankie Knuckles was the godfather of house, his child was raised by Ron Hardy. They said that Frankie was stimulating change with a controlled momentum, but Ron Hardy, fueled by a demonic appetite, was ready to tamper with nature, eager to release musical forces beyond his control. And he's looking to the future. You know, they said if Frankie had been trying to keep disco alive, Ron Hardy is on beyond. He's looking, what's the next thing? He's like, forget about that old disco. Where is this stuff going? And he absolutely plunges it into the, into the future. And he gets this younger, younger crowd and you get people like Marshall Jefferson who goes on to become one of the key house music producers. Yeah. He's a thin Lizzie fan. He's a black kid, but he's a thin Lizzie fan. He likes his rock and roll. He goes to the club and just has this conversion experience when he, when he hears that sound system and, feels it it's you know time to put those thin lizzie records away like you know you cannot the rock experience cannot compete with what he's seeing in the clubs and and that's what you know ron hardy really brings and he's even though the two of them have overlapping playlists and they're so competitive they can't or they're competing for the same audience so they can't be open on the same night so eventually they settle into a routine where the power plants open tuesday thursday or Wednesday and Friday, and and the music box is open Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. So Ron Hardy's clearly winning the battle at the, at the ticket box to some extent, and um, you know is just going wild and and making making things happen. And it's not just these two DJs in the clubs. There's also radio exposure and i cannot emphasize enough how important that is to a scene when you can get into that broadcast niche and you can expose people to it who are just driving in their cars or just listening at home they don't have to go out to the clubs and hear it and uh one of the big stations in chicago wbmx in july of 84 or in the 81 i think was when they started it they put on the hot mix five and and they start they're not playing exactly what Frankie Knuckles is playing at the warehouse. They're doing their own mixes, a lot of human league type, you know, English synth pop, a lot of Italo disco though, a lot of this other disco. And let's hear Mickey Mixon Oliver, one of the hot mix five. He's on WBMX in July of 1984. And he's mixing Sheila E's glamorous life with Prince's when the doves cry. And here's the transition. was the hot mix five on wbmx radio mixing prince and sheila e and uh it, it ran from 81 to 86 later on they moved to wgci and at, at their peak they were reaching about half a million people 
per show. It's like a sixth of the population of Chicago. So Chicago is able to create this regional house sound and scene that's reaching a lot of people. In Chicago, house is so popular in the 80s with black kids that hip-hop doesn't make headway. Electro and, and what Africa Bambata is doing is not making a headway. You know, and it's not really covered in the book, but uh, they mentioned the fact that, uh, that there's kind of a, an equivalent to the New York block parties that, that kind of made hip hop happen. There's similar high school dances that kids are putting on and they're hiring Frankie Knuckles to come and DJ at this and pulling in like ten thousand dollars for uh, for a high school dance where where it's just house music. So this is this is where a bunch of uh, once again, uh, entrepreneur kids get get together and really take on house and uh, and and make it their own so this is where it kind of escapes from from just from the gay clubs from the after hours and then starts spreading through the radio and through these dances and then all of a sudden you know you you can be like a 16 year old kid and be in the know absolutely and, and it's very analogous to what had been happening in new, in new york since the late 60s with these sound system battles and what happened in jamaica that we talked about um i never heard of the northern soul djs doing a sound system battle in england but everywhere else we've talked about at some point or other they get their sound systems out and they want to compete um and yeah i find this just totally fascinating and and it this it's not just the margins of society. It's also these regional scenes where you can have a local concentrated hothouse of innovation where people are hearing a different sound that people in other parts of the country of the world are not hearing. And that sound can evolve quietly in a little backwater. And, you know, Chicago is a big major city. I don't want to diss Chicago, but musically it was kind of a backwater. The industry was in LA and New York and, even cities like Minneapolis, you know, with Prince and then the punk rock scene that was going on in the mid 80s had a more commercial. There was much more attention being paid by the record industry to Minneapolis than there was to Chicago around this time. This is insane. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, Prince is, of course, going to be have some gravitational pull, you know, like so I, I can understand that. And, you know, who's going to do the replacements are, are important as well. And I can see where record companies understood that stuff. We know rock and roll. We know R&B and funk. We can make money with this. Here's a record star. Here's a real musician. You know, you get somebody like Prince, who's obviously this gifted artist. Ah, yeah, we can put money into this. You get somebody like Jesse Saunders, who's a popular local DJ around this time. He's one of these kids that starts playing in the gyms and playing on the South side. When you hear the record he makes, which is essentially an attempt to recreate a bootleg mix record that he had called on and on where they had mixed a number of popular tracks at the time with an 808 beat and either it was stolen or the DJ who actually owned it took it back from him, but he decided to recreate it with, with some, pretty cheap equipment. He had an 808, a Korg Poly 61 keyboard, and a TV 303 baseline machine, four-track cassette recorder. He makes this record called On and On. That, I dig it, but it sounds like crap. I mean, like people would say when the, when the radio would go from Prince to Jesse Saunders, it sounded like tin cans, you know? I mean, it's just, it was not well EQ'd or mixed, you know, it, it was it was slapped together. And it took him a while, multiple records to get, as one guy describes in the book, from one twentieth as good at sounding as Prince to one fifth as good, and by the time he reached that, he's immense in Chicago. You know, he's already got his popular club crowd. People are digging the sound he's he's dropped on these records. Puts it out on his own Just Say label in January '84, and it sells thousands of records. And the guy at the pressing plant, wh who's going to come up a lot in this, is 
so skeptical of this record that he bets his Corvette that this thing will not be a hit, and he has to give away his Corvette. Um, it's it's just craziness. Yeah, there's 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 different stories, you know, between what you have in the book where he was saying that On and On was based on a Donna Donna Summer track, and but there's interviews with Jesse Saunders where he basically says that. Uh, he credits the bass line to Lips Inc.'s Funky Town. And when you listen to it side by side, you can hear that. And apparently the only reason it wasn't just a straight sample steal for, for, for the original version was because he lost the record before he was able to steal it. So he had to recreate it. But, uh, you know, it's one of those real, real checks on some of the pretension that goes around about house and house roots when you realize one of the seminal tracks of the genre is just a ripoff of Funky Town. Yeah, it's um, but that's how, you know, it's the same thing with rock and roll. It's the same thing with jazz. That's how music gets made. It's it's monkey see, monkey do, monkey hear, monkey imitate. And, you know, if people can hear something and they love it, they're going to recreate it. It's the same with reggae. You know, in Jamaica, they talked about how dozens of reggae ska and dub records would recycle the same drum lick or the same bass line. And, you know, it's just it's what people do, whether it's, you know, Benny Goodman or Jesse Saunders. Or Elvis Presley, you know, if if somebody hears something, they're talented enough to recreate it, they're going to do that. And but even also, though it's raw, it's still it's still different. You you give a lot of credit to to say the sound of the eight hundred eight or the nine hundred nine, or the three hundred three, or you know, or these synths that they're using because these these all these all these bleeps and bloops. This is all new stuff. This is all even if it's really raw and it's really stripped down and there's not a lot going on, which is which is I think. You know, when you go back and you listen to it, and if you don't kind of put yourself in a position of thinking about it as history, you can say, well, what's what what's there to this? But, you know, uh, it's hard to understate how different this sounded from a lot of, of what was going on. Yeah, this is the moment where record production catches up with what the DJs have been doing. And, you know, obviously Giorgio Moroder and others had been making electronic dance records for about a decade by this point. But Giorgio Moroder had millions of dollars worth of equipment in a massive studio in Munich. I mean, you know, when the Bee Gees do a drum loop on Staying Alive, they're in a castle in France with massive resources. House is the moment when the technology gets cheap enough that teenage kids just punk kids can get their hands on this stuff and make their own records. And it's not all sloppy and bad. I mean, there's a guy named Byron Walton who uh, makes a record under his name, Jamie Principal, called Your Love, that goes around on cassette tape for about a year in 83 before it comes out on record. And nobody believes it comes from Chicago because it's so slick and smooth. So, you know, there's multiple sides to, to the sh- to and, the and I feel like and, bad music is uh, or poorly produced music uh, there, there's a, there's a whole joke going around in the scene now in, in production circles where they just talk about all oh, your snare is shit and, and that's like the big joke of like the production is not pre- precise enough and therefore we're not even going to give it the time of day it's terrible whatever and you go back to, to these days where this stuff is being you know made uh, on a on a four track, it probably transferred transferred from fuzzy analog tape onto vinyls that are literally made from ki- like melted down sneakers, uh, and and all of a sudden you realize this stuff still makes people move because good music is good music. You know, Jesse Saunders stole that bass line for a reason because it made people move, 
and it doesn't, you know, you can lose a lot in, in, in some of the technical prowess and you can still get your point across and you can still get people to dance. And I've, I've always been a big believer in that. And that's kind of Ron Hardy's position as well is that he had a reputation for playing some of the crappier sounding stuff, quote unquote, uh, because he wouldn't let, you know, a poor dub get in the way of, of, of playing something that he felt like had raw power. And, uh, that's, that's, that's me, you know, I'm, I'm right there with him. Absolutely. And, and, um, and I want to note it was Richard Long who designed all these sound systems. And so, you know, when Ron Hardy is busting this stuff over this incredible sound system, I can only imagine what it sounded like. And the thing I've discovered, and it's not like it's an innovative discovery, but rather than going and listening to the original records on YouTube, I found it much more satisfying to listen to the DJ mixes using these records. If you can find a Ron Hardy mix or a Frankie Knuckles mix from the eighties or a hot mix five session. And there are lots of them, especially on SoundCloud, listen to those. And when you hear these songs in the context of these longer sets, then it really makes sense and you can really feel the power and you can, you know, when you hear like your love coming on in a set that's filled with, you know, some high energy and some Donna summer and some Italo disco, your love really jumps out as a new thing. And uh, I, I highly recommend that. So that's one thing I think this book really taught me. And, and um, Michelangelo Matos's book, uh, The Underground is Massive, emphasized the same thing. Like this is DJ music and it really it ideally should be experienced in these clubs, in these sound systems, under the influence of the club drugs in front of the people jacking but if you can't replicate that in your home now 40 years later you can at least listen to the dj sets and kind of get get the feel for it it's um yeah you can hear it everything everything you know the tracks pitched you know slightly faster mixed into each other to build energy and uh, with the gains pumped up and with a nice analog fuzz to the sound and it just really sounds good really really hits you right in the uh time machine Absolutely. Uh, a good way to describe it. And um, let's take a word from our sponsor. And when we come back, we'll hear more about this explosion of records that comes out of Chicago in the 80s. After these first couple of records come out and they sell and people see that Jesse Saunders you know, is making a record like when Jamie principal puts out a cassette that is so good. People think it came from Italy. That didn't cause a gold rush for people saying I can do that because he was clearly very talented and special. But when Jesse Saunders does on and on a whole crowd of kids says I can do that. And so you get people like Marshall Jefferson taking his money he earned at the post office and just buying $9,000 worth of equipment. You know, he gets a Roland JX 8P keyboard, a Korg EX 8,000 module, which I don't really know what does. Do you know what, what that piece does, Ryan? Uh, give me the name again. The Korg EX8000 module. Mm, sounds like a synthesizer. Yeah, we should have Googled this in advance. But And he got the Roland 707, 808, and 909 drum machines, plus a TB303, that's the bass machine, and a Tascam 4-track. And two days later, he made a track because, you know, the guys at the post office are all making fun of him. You spent how much money on all this stuff, and you can't even play anything? And within just a few weeks he's made a whole ep and then um he figures out how to play amazing simulations of piano playing on these synths he figures out if he slows it down and plays at half speed that when he speeds it up it sounds like a real piano player so when his record move your body comes out and it's got what sounds like a piano track 
he reaches a point where, you know, Ron Hardy's playing seven of his tracks in a row um, in one night, you know, and, and these kids discover, you know, if I can make some beats that are hot and I take it to Frankie Knuckles or Ron Hardy, boom, you know, it's going to be played in the hottest club. There's a chance the hot mix five guys are going to pick it up and people are going to be selling it. Yeah, this is where an ecosystem is is so important for a scene. Like uh, we were talking about Jersey Sound last week, uh, the garage sound. Uh, th- this was another situation where Tony Humphreys in New Jersey made it a point he was going to be taking these artists under his wings and 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 anybody that came to him with, with music that was worth playing, he would play and he would really try to try, try to get their names out and, and promote them and stuff like that. And it, it feels like... Uh, Ron Hardy and Frankie Knuckles were the same, Ron Hardy even more so than Frankie. And again, this is where it comes down to all of the the historians, all of the initial people who came over to Chicago getting the the story. They all heard about Frankie Knuckles and Ron Hardy. So it ends up always kind of sounding like a competition, but both of them were really good about playing what was brought to them if it was worthwhile. And, and, and Ron Hardy was just known for, you know, if you gave something to Frankie Knuckles, he would take it home and listen to it and think about it. But Ron Hardy would would take it and play it three or four times that night, uh, and 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 break a track, and and all of all of a sudden you'd be you'd you'd be something, you'd be somewhere. Yeah, and like Marshall Jefferson has a story about bringing one of his tracks. I think it was Marshall Jefferson to Ron Hardy, and the, he plays it early in the night when he tries out new material, clears the dance floor, nobody likes it. But he plays it again, you know, and at first they think, oh, no, we're done. But then Ron Hardy plays it again. Some people dance. You know, he, he waits till the crowd fills up, the floor fills up again, plays it again. It doesn't clear out the floor. Next, then he plays it again and more people stay on. And then when he plays it at 4 a.m., people are going wild. Oh, it's Future's Acid House. I jumped ahead of myself. That's the track that that story goes with. Ah, I'm, I'm jittery and moving this because this stuff is so exciting. But I also want to get to tracks records and uh, the the – business side of this like, like there's two record companies that emerge out of this rocky jones has dj international and he's the guy who ran the local record pool he put out stuff like steve hurley one of the hot mix five had a group jm silk um that does quite well in england and other places but the main guy putting out records is this guy larry sherman at tracks records not confused with wax tracks which is the chicago industrial label that's going on around the same time larry sherman at tracks records he runs the only pressing plant in town so that like you know he's the guy who bet his corvette that on and on would be a flop and when he loses his corvette he he realizes ah you know next time i'm going to be buying a corvette on the money that's made and so like when somebody like Marshall Jefferson brings his record Move Your Body, the one with the piano track I was just talking about, to be um, put on, to be printed, and it's supposed to be on his own record label, but ends up getting put on the tracks label at the plant. And you know things would happen like Jesse Saunders' record on and on would be sold out. Somebody would call the record plant and say, hey, can I order some on and on? And he'd be like, yeah, sure. And he'd print up 5,000 of them without necessarily telling Jesse Saunders. And I mean, just look at this guy. I don't want to say anything libelous about Larry Sherman, but just look at him. If you find videos or pictures of him, this guy screams Chicago. And the scariest and most cliched sense of that word i mean this guy looks like a bruiser he is a big tough dude white guy 
And, you know, Tracks Records was notorious for recycling vinyl and, and people claim you could sometimes get a record with a cigarette butt in it. I mean, it's just like, you know, sometimes the records worked, sometimes they didn't. It was very much short term money. They would frequently pay these kids a flat fee of five hundred or two thousand dollars or whatever, take all the publishing rights for himself. And, you know, down the road, that really hurts the scene. There's. You know, Larry Sherman is not a David Geffen type figure who's going to take you to the very top kids. But yeah, no, Larry Sherman, basically, uh, there's a lot of back and forth on on how skeezy he was. There's no denying that he, you know, he made all the money off those records while giving these kids, you know, like, you know, a couple hundred bucks, maybe a thousand bucks for a big record. And then he'd turn around and, and he'd be making 50 times that. Um, but it, it, it's strange that uh, there, there's there's a certain amount of. Uh, it's almost kind of uh, people people look at it almost in a joking kind of way because he was apparently very nice about it at the time. But, you know, he was the guy that stood between because he was the guy who pressed the records. You had to go through him. And if he just said no, you weren't pressing a record. But but he would put anybody out on tracks records. And if yeah. you go onto Spotify now and you you're flipping through the names of anybody that's brought up in this chapter, you're going to keep on seeing that tracks record logo pop up, pop up, pop up because he has the rights. tracks records has the rights to all of these tracks. And it's been like that since the beginning. And not only is that when you think about the, the residuals and and licensing and how that works now. But at the time, he was secretly sending this stuff over to Europe and making crazy amounts of money. Um, Trax Records was obviously at the front of what was going on with the Acid House scene that kind of kicked off in 87 in the UK. And none of these guys even in Chicago even knew that any of that was going on. Like they, they didn't they weren't even basically told that 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 Sherman was selling their music overseas. And it wasn't until reporters from the UK came to Chicago to see where all this music was coming from that they even found out that that there was a scene in the, in the UK and it was booming and you've got a number one track and and everybody kind of laughs about it they 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 kind of laugh it off every everybody's you know like it's it's kind of like you always expect to get screwed over by the label owner so i guess they kind of take it like that and i figure maybe they made enough money uh, in their in their heyday off of DJing and performances that there's no hard feelings. But when you think about there's the some amount hard of money, feelings. I, I yeah. saw some interviews. There's there's definitely some hard feelings and definitely kids that are like and and now these are grown men. But you know that you know that Sherman was telling us this stuff was only big in Chicago, Detroit, and New York. He didn't mention that it was also big in you know Ibiza and London and Paris and everything else. So. Yeah, there's definitely a little bit of bitterness there and and just kind of a, you know, what the heck happened. But let's let's hear one of these songs. Let's hear Marshall Jefferson's Move Your Body from 1986.
is Marshall Jefferson's Move Your Body from 1986. Of course, it's on Tracks Records. And, you know, Marshall Jefferson's, if if you get a chance, go on YouTube and, and watch some interviews with him. Uh, there's a documentary, I Was There When House Conquered the World, that I highly recommend. And Marshall Jefferson will tell you, you know, the scene was held back from conquering the world in part because of the business practices of Larry Sherman, but, but he also feels but also because of our limited talents. He's like, I wasn't a musician. I knew a little bit more about song structure than say Jesse Saunders, but I still wasn't Prince and I couldn't take it to that next level of producing multiple classic hit number one around the world type pop songs. And, and that's something that, you know, is going to continue to dog house and EDM at least in America, well into the 21st century. It's a long time before it conquers the pop world. It's not until, you know, 2005 to 2015 or so that, and especially with Daft Punk um, leading the way that it conquers the pop world in America. But it's, you know, in the 80s, it's a local scene in Chicago. And then we'll talk in, in next episodes of how it how it travels the world. And it it is immediately popular in England. I mean, there's number 10 hits in England, number one hits in England. Um, but it's, um, I think it's, I don't know. I just found it interesting. Marshall Jefferson and then the guys from Mud Honey, who were like one of the first grunge bands who'd ever made it big are the only people I've ever heard say, well, I just wasn't talented enough to get that big. Like, yeah, you gotta, you, you appreciate the, the, the modesty and the, the willingness to, to tell the truth on that. And I think it, you know, it, it's good not to obscure that there was a, a real DIY element to it. And, and it was, you know, to me, it's similar to the punk scene. Uh, I like back in, back in the rave day, I had my own terrible rave band and we weren't very good at anything, but we took it from the old school, hardcore punk ethos where it didn't matter if you didn't really know how to play all your instruments you just had to bang out hard and uh i I got a lot of respect for that and i I like anybody who's willing to admit you know hey we just we just took what we knew what we found from other things and we did something different with it you know and they were very clear on it they said it wasn't stealing because stealing is if you take something someone else is going to do and you do it before they do it but what they were doing was they were they were taking things that were already done and they were using them in new and interesting ways. And that's not much different than what a DJ is supposed to do. So I always found uh, it's very it's very refreshing when when people are completely open and honest about the fact that we didn't really know too much, but we knew it sounded good and we took it and we, we made changes to it. And now it's our own. Absolutely. And and one one point that I asked last week and we didn't have an answer for but watching some of these documentaries, I think in the documentary I just mentioned, Larry LeVan was breaking some of these records in New York. It wasn't dominating his mix. You know, it was still overall the garage flavor that we that has gone down in history coming out of New York and New Jersey. But House was part of that mix. Um, and also, we'll talk about it next week, but Detroit Techno is also coming in and being played in Chicago around the same time. It's very hard to, I have sympathy for the authors. They're trying to break this down into discrete genre chapters, but that's not how people live life. Like the house genre is happening at the same time as high energy is dominating the pop charts in England, as garage is dominating the clubs in New York, as techno is dominating these house parties in Detroit and spilling over into Chicago. So it's all interconnected and there's a lot of threads in the tapestry and we're just trying to grab a one at a time as we climb along. And, and, and I'm saying that because, and I already kind of spoiled this, 
when I told the story of how this song was broken by Ron Hardy and the clubs, but Acid House is invented around the same time. A guy named Nathan Pierre Jones, AKA DJ Pierre had a group called future and he got his hands on a role in TV 303, which Jesse Saunders had too. And it's this piece of set little piece of equipment that was intended to accompany, say, keyboard players or guitarists who are practicing solo and they want to get a hang for playing with the bass player. So here's a little machine where you can program a simple bass line or it's got pre-programmed bass lines and you can have that playing while you're accompanying yourself, you know, on piano or guitar. It's not made to record. It's definitely, it's not even made to perform live. It's just made to practice. It's a pretty crappy piece of equipment, but Pierre Jones gets his hands on this thing and finds a sound it's not supposed to make. He just starts turning knobs because he doesn't know what he's doing and doesn't care and and creates this weird squelching bass sound that becomes the foundation of Acid House. So not only is the house genre going to come out of this, but Acid House, which goes on to become a whole different genre and really explodes in England in just a couple years, um, comes out. And they've got a great quote. The invention of Acid House is a perfect example of an available technology being perverted in the service of dance music. How's that for perversion? <laughs> I like it. And it's, it's interesting to note that, you know, and, and this just goes to how difficult it can be to kind of separate these things. When we're talking about Acid House, UK Acid House, uh, Acid House does, the, the root of Acid House, you can track back to DJ Pure Acid Tracks. But at the same time, Acid House, as it's uh, understood or as the entire scene was known in the UK, was was just as much Chicago house. And, uh, you know, there was a bunch of garage going on kind of as well. All of this stuff was going on. The reason Acid House caught on was because it was probably the most titillating of the names to call it uh, as far as the UK media was concerned. So Acid House was an element of the Acid House scene, but as a whole, you can throw in all of the different genres and the disco, the, the, the garage, the Jersey sound, uh, the Detroit techno, all of that fell under the Acid House uh, portmanteau that was being, you know, put into the headlines of UK newspapers saying, don't, don't let your kids go to this acid house stuff. And of course, <laughs> of course, Absolutely. what do they do? They go. Yeah. And, and also the word got out about how these sounds were made. And there are a ton of records that are purely acid house that have that role in TV 303 squelchy bass sound. And it's one of the sounds that has aged the poorest, I think, because it's so associated with that era. And that we should also talk about the drug diet that's going on in these clubs at the time. This is much less a cocaine scene than what we've been talking about, like with Studio 54 in New York or with the high energy scene in London and San Francisco. This is an LSD scene, MDA, which is a precursor to, to ecstasy. Um, it's a very different trip. It's Got some More of that psychedelic. Stuff. Yeah, it, it's a 10-hour commitment at least, um, but it has some of that love bug vibe that Ecstasy has. Also, PCP is in the mix, lots of pot. So, you know, people are getting screwed up and listening to this music and it's and and creating this music. People are getting high and creating this music too. So it's, you know, that's, that's all part of the blend in there. Yeah, people, it was initially called Acid... Uh, acid tracks because after Ron Hardy played it 
you know, several times over the course of the night, everybody was calling it Ron Hardy's acid track because when he dropped it, everybody was high on acid. So, you know, sometimes people are like, oh, you know, it's called acid house, not because of acid, uh, but because of the acid sounds of the 303. I don't know. Go, go far enough back right to that first performance. Everybody was high on acid. We call it acid. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. And that's one thing about the eighties, the sixties is when we LSD gets enormous amounts of attention. And that's when people, you know, Timothy Leary, at Yale or Harvard, I forget which Ivy League institution he was at, you know, but and famous novelists like Ken Kesey and people like Bob Dylan and the Beatles are doing acid. But for the vast majority of people, millions more people took LSD in the 80s than took it in the 60s. This is when the Grateful Dead was touring the country and the world and were consistently the number one or the number five top concert attraction in the country. And there's whole you know there's missile silos in kansas that have been converted into lsd factories and so there's more lsd around in the 80s than at any other point in human history and so that's you know you cannot separate acid house from that the the lsd that was going around at the time and you know that's just one of the fascinating things let's hear our last record and this is mr fingers can you feel it this is another one of these teams where they had a more sophisticated musician and a really talented singer this is mr fingers can you feel it from 1986 How's Mr. Fingers? Can you feel it? Ryan, you picked that one. Tell us a little bit more about it. I just like it because it's got that jazzy kind of sound to it. This is this is where, you know, uh, as you were saying, there was that DIY ethos, but now you're starting to get some guys in who really know their way around a keyboard and understand, you know, they can they can put some vocals in there that, that are really soulful and sound really good. And uh, it's got kind of that flatter, dubbier, strange kind of sound that I think that house kind of when, when you're talking about techno and ending up with more of a metallic kind of sound to it, I find that house walls uh, or at least Chicago house is being different from New York garage house, garage house kind of came from that disco sound and had a lot of that natural disco element. Well, this this is definitely robots, but it's still robots being funky. Absolutely. And and another thing that happens around this time is records like that start doing well in the UK charts. And there's two in particular. Um, Farley Jack Master Funk, who is one of the Hot Mix Five. And the thing about the Hot Mix Five is there's like 15 guys that were in the Hot Mix Five at various points, including Frankie Knuckles. It's like but, Menudo. Yeah. <laughs> but Farley Jack Master Funk um, and Daryl Panda put out a record called Love Can't Turn Around. Uh, which is a, a modification of Isaac Hayes, I Can't Turn Around. It makes the top 10 uh, in the UK in September 86. But Silk Hurley had a group called JM Silk, and he, he kind of had a feud with Farley Jackmaster Funk, where I think Hurley claimed he was the first Jackmaster. A classic title battle uh, from underground music, very much Shades of Grandmaster Flash and Grandmaster Flowers. But Silk Hurley and Keith Nunnally. Um, had put out a record called Music is the Key that, you know, was a big hit in Chicago, sold 2000 on its first day, but kind of Farley Jackmaster Funk stole his thunder a little bit, but he had his revenge when J.M. Silk's Jack Your Body made the 
number one slot in the UK in 1987. And that one, I feel like he knew that had happened. That's that's when the word is getting back to Chicago that something is going on over there in England and they might want to investigate. And just a little bit of a throwback right there. That's our that's our buddy from uh, that's Ian Levine from from the northern soul scene who then got into high energy, who went and got them and got that track made. So this is this is him going over and, and maybe getting around the tracks record guys and uh, and 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 doing that with them and bringing that there and sending word back that it was massively successful. Yeah, and that's an I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, I love when these threads connect. So Ian Levine, you know, somebody we talked about in the Northern Soul chapter, we talked about in the High Energy chapter, and here he is helping out the house kids in Chicago and bringing them over to England. And so you have this little window of time when Chicago has a fully functioning musical ecosystem. You've got the clubs downtown, you've got the the DJs in the suburbs on the south side that are playing gyms and house parties. You've got tracks records and other people selling records locally. And I mean, you know, when a punk rock record that gets covered in Rolling Stone sold 20,000 copies, that was a big deal. Like when Who's Cruise in Arcade sold 20,000 copies in 1984, it was like, wow, independent records are really moving along. There was probably 15 records in Chicago that were selling that much just a couple years later. So it's a big deal when these records are selling 10,000, 20,000 copies. That's real money for, for a small level entrepreneur uh, like Larry Sherman at Tracks Records. And it's, obviously get an industry notice in England and other places. And so you have this brief window when things are cool, but then a number of factors happen. Hip hop starts pushing in and and it gets so big that there starts to be a hip hop scene in Chicago. And there's some tension between this scene and the existing house scene. The existing house scene had been very homo friendly and hip hop has been dogged with a reputation sometimes deserved for being homophobic. So there's, you know, this confrontation there. Um, and there's a, a blend genre that emerges called hip house. Um, you know, you get people like Tyree and fast Eddie that, that are, are making these hip house records. You get groups like the jungle brothers that are more known as a hip hop group, but they put out some hip hop hip house records. Uh, let me house you was one of theirs. And, um, and I don't quite get it how, you know, the authors say that hip house is one of the things that damaged the club scene. And I don't get how. Do you have an insight into what they mean or what actually happened on the ground there? Yeah, I looked into it a bit more because it was a very unsatisfying answer. And and I got kind of a two prong thing. And the first one was uh, this, this is the biggest one is that uh, Chicago passed a bylaw in 1987 that that forced after hours clubs to close at the same time as regular bars. And that decimated uh that that decimated the scene uh that, that was when the music box shut down that's when the power plant shut down all of a sudden you got guys like frankie knuckles going back to new york you got a lot of the other even the successful producers that were making all that uh big chicago house stuff in chicago they're no longer writing stuff for chicago and chicago djs they're writing acid house for the uk market and chicago is not into the it isn't into that at least not outside of an after hours format so that that was a big issue is that a lot of the biggest names that they had are no longer uh chicago based they've left or they're no longer chicago centered they're writing for the uk market yeah and, and jesse saunders signs with geffen and goes to la and and doesn't bridge that gap doesn't make it into the next era uh, kind of like jelly bean benitas getting a contract that we talked about last last time i mean the record, the American record companies keep betting on the wrong DJs. It seems like. 
Yeah. And at the same time, you have radio starting to become the crappy media conglomerate controlled thing that it is today. And uh, the DJs are no longer given the free reign that, that, that they would get before. You know, we, we touched on that earlier. You were saying how important it is for uh, radio play to, to keep a, keep a scene alive. And you look at any major scene, it was the same Chicago house. It was, it was like that in Chicago and with the Detroit techno and in, in Detroit, they got a lot of radio play. And in the UK you had uh, Danny Rampling, who basically is kind of considered the, the guy who broke acid house in the UK. He was on uh, kiss FM banging the box and, and, and playing all that stuff at all hours. And all of a sudden when it just gets relegated to the middle of the night now, you know, uh, the 8 AM to 11 PM is nothing but top 40. Then you lose a lot of that, that cachet and, and people aren't hearing it. It's no longer cool. And so, but to me in the end, what I think it kind of is, it was an overstatement of Chicago's house scene dying. Because I've, I've been to Chicago. Chicago is one of the places that I used to get booked a lot. I had a couple of friends there that used to bring me down regularly. And uh, as far as I could see, uh, like in the late 90s, early 2000s, everything was still still popping. It's just Chicago no longer was a pioneering force in, in, in what was going on. They were still there and doing doing what they were doing, having parties and having clubs and everything else like that. But, you know, uh, it, it's it's day in the sun. It's big fame moment. It's big historical importance that that ended. But everything else, I think, just continued to a lesser degree. Yeah, cool. That makes sense. And also the mafia was a factor. They started muscling in on the clubs before the mayor uh, shut them down. So there's kind of a, a pincer effect where you're getting squeezed by the illicit elements and then and then crushed by the politicians. And, you know, Frankie Knuckles moves back to New York, like you said, and he, he passed away a year or so ago, I think. 2014. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> okay. He passed away seven years ago. Um, oh, man. That's seven years ago. Oh, yeah. Yeah. man. So it seems like yesterday to us olds. But, you know, he has a lot, nice long run, and he, he gets to experience uh, his fame and, and gets to see EDM take over America before he passes and play some immense shows as a DJ. But unfortunately, poor Ron Hardy – you know, one of these burning his candle at both ends, guys, maybe at four ends. Um, he, he descends into drug addiction and dies in 1992. So hats off to Ron Hardy and, you know, music lovers everywhere should should thank him and Frankie Knuckles for lighting the spark. That yeah, he, he sets gets, he gets a explosion. bit maybe he gets maybe a bit too much of a bad uh, rap as, as being the, the DJ at the drug fueled music box or, and uh, you know, maybe, maybe that's the, the music box's reputation. It may, might be well-earned, but you know, uh, sometimes that is the, that is the cauldron from which like the most interesting stuff comes out of. And, and fortunately, as Nate said earlier, there's a bunch of mixes from Ron Hardy through all of these formative years, like 80 to 85, when, when everything was still like kind of coalescing and happening and you can go and you can listen to them and they're just phenomenal. Yeah, absolutely. So hats off to Ron Hardy, the guy who was willing to channel forces beyond his control. And it certainly escalated way out of his control and has had an enormous, I don't think you can overstate the influence of house on 21st century music. I mean, you listen to anything, whether it's kids calling themselves emo core, punk rock descended stuff or, or hip hop descended stuff, you know, mumble rap and all that stuff. It's all 
you listen to the backing track and it's almost all electronic uh, house derived stuff. So, you know, an immensely important uh, genre. Next week, we'll be back, me and Ryan Harkness, to talk about Detroit and their contribution to the scene, techno. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Nate and Ryan will be back next week to continue their discussion of Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey by Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton. They'll be heading to Detroit to talk about the Belleville 3 and the birth of techno. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey, is published by Grove Press. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com.